You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. You're listening to Updates for Healthcare Providers, Experiences from the Front Lines. This episode was recorded live from the presenters' homes and without access to professional recording equipment. Yeah, yeah, thank we you hope for having you enjoy. us um, for, I guess, our, uh, our fifth webinar with uh, myself, Donish, and, and Adam, and um, excited with uh, some of our co-presenters that are uh, new for us in terms of this collaboration tonight, but I know have been very involved in, uh, in COVID education, and, and many of, uh, of whom have been involved in the UBC uh, webinars uh, with you. Uh, thank you to, uh, to, to you, Bob, for organizing all these, and of course, Stephanie, uh, who's done uh, an incredible amount of work in the background. Um, I don't think in the last webinars we've uh, we thanked enough for keeping us uh, us organized. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, to tonight's uh, discussion and hopefully, as Bob said, getting to a lot of your uh, a lot of your questions tonight. Um, in terms of who we are, so uh, yeah, my name is Omar. I'm an emerge and ICU doc in uh, Victoria, and I'm the department head for emerge and critical care. I'm joined again with my uh, my close friend and uh, colleague. Uh, Dr. Adam Thomas, who is also an eMERGE physician, an ICU physician here in Victoria, and uh, is uh, recently in the last few days of his uh, ICU fellowship between um, that and, and uh, his, his wife's uh, just on the verge of having their second baby anytime. Uh, Adam Thomas also is uh, of international renown from his uh, work with um, Adam Farkas and the Internet Book of Critical Care. Um, as always, very happy to have uh, representation from New York City with Donna Shamad, who is uh, somehow miraculously triple boarded in uh, emergency medicine, internal medicine, and uh, critical care medicine, works in the Mount Sinai Hospital System uh, in New York. And it was great to hear all his perspectives, especially as New York was the epicenter of, uh, of the world for, for COVID. Uh, very pleased to, uh, to introduce some, uh, some really distinguished uh, new um, colleagues that are joining us tonight, starting off with uh, Jeanette Boyd. So Jeanette is a, uh, one of those uh, people that, uh, that does it all. So she's a rural uh, physician uh, working general practice in Nelson and is a full uh, service physician. She's also the president of the BC uh, College of, uh, of Family Physicians and is also the, uh, the lead for uh, obstetrics uh, through the Royal, uh, or sorry, the Rural Coordination Center. Uh, Katie Whisker uh, is also of some international acclaim um, and is an internist uh, working at uh, Vancouver General Hospital and has been very active uh, in social media, um, doing a lot of education and very involved uh, with Vancouver Coastal working uh, with, um, with uh, COVID preparation and management. Um, very pleased to also uh, have with us tonight uh, Pam Kipsley, Dr. Pam Kipsey. She is a, a medical microbiologist but was one of the uh, lead figures uh, at um, Island Health Authority uh, right from the onset with COVID and is an incredible wealth of knowledge and really helped uh, push our preparation um, forward here in Island Health. And because of her amazing work, we really felt uh, quite prepared and ready to go. And finally, um, can't uh, stop talking about uh, this gentleman sitting next to me here, Dr. Donovan McDonald, one of the uh, R4 emergency medicine uh, residents who is working tirelessly uh, in the background, uh, feeding us questions and making sure we are, uh, we're staying on track. So uh, welcome everyone. Um, for disclosures tonight. No uh, more, sorry, we have Raquel today too. 
Oh my goodness, how did Raquel, oh my gosh, thank you. Um, Raquel, I am so sorry. So we're very uh, pleased to have uh, Raquel Kling with us as well, and she is one of the medical officers of health working in uh, northern BC, and uh, very excited to have her share her perspectives um, on, on public health, um, not only in BC, but in her unique environment in northern health as well. And my extreme apologies, uh, Raquel, we're very excited to have you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Um, so in terms of disclosures, we have no conflicts of interest and no really uh, no disclosures to uh, to speak of. As with previous webinars, we do want to disclose that uh, none of us are experts, but we're kind of learning as we go and reading lots and trying to stay apprised of the situation. As people have always probably heard on multiple other areas, that uh, you know what we tell you today may very well be uh, proven false uh, over the coming days or weeks and. Uh, you know, sometimes we presented something and when we get off the webinar, there's a new article in, uh, in Lancet or Nejum that's, that's uh, bringing out something new or contradictory to what we may have said. So uh, changing space, so nice to know it's not changing as quickly as it was in, in early days. Um, do want to um, put in a plug for uh, Rosie Telehealth, which is a, uh, a virtual health support uh, group that myself and Adam Thomas are part of, and uh, Mario francis Pagasum, a one of our Emerge ICU colleagues who's been involved with us in these previous talks that we're all part of, and it's a, it's a means to provide rural uh, support to get access to an emergency physician or a critical care physician to help uh, walk through uh, difficult cases. And we have the utmost respect for our rural colleagues who deal with a lot of these cases on our own. Uh, I had a tough intubation last night in the Emerge, but I had multiple hands around, and I was just thinking of you know, how I still struggled, but uh, it's so much different in rural areas. So we're here to provide support. Uh, and answer questions at any time. Um, as always, we need to talk about sources of truth because there are many sources of truth and there's things published every single day and there's uh, not everything that you read is, uh, is reliable and certainly even some of the, uh, the major journals we've seen uh, have had retractions of articles. So very interesting times. We know that Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine have, uh, have retracted articles uh, that have been published and uh, the rate of publications is unprecedented. Uh, the uh, the peer review process and the, the methodology you know, and all the things we look for for good studies have, have really dropped in, in the last few months. And understandably so on the one side, because we want to share as much information as we can, but at the same time we have to take caution and really still continue to critically appraise what, uh, what we're reading. Uh, so these are some good sites we've talked about before, some good places to get uh, great information. And of course our, our hero, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, is, uh, is fantastic. Always look to your, uh, your health authorities as well as uh, BC CDC. Um, other sites, uh, CAPE, Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, is great. And the, uh, the podcast that Adam is part of, the Internet Book of Critical Care, is also another great site. Canadian Medical Association Journal has been publishing some great, uh, great reviews as well. Um, it's interesting looking back at uh, epidemiologically uh, the cases that have uh, have been increasing over time. I was flipping through my notebook that I've, I keep for my, my presentations, and I looked back to the first presentation I gave, and it was to uh, it was at Rural Grand Rounds many months ago, and at that point we only had 25,000 cases worldwide. And I think the uh, the first time we presented as the uh, Critical Care Emergency Medicine Group, uh, we had uh, 250,000 cases, and then subsequently every time went up to 250, a million, two million, four million. And it continues to double every time we chat. But I think things are finally starting to, to slow down, at least the first wave. Unfortunately, we are seeing signs of, uh, of a second uh, surge in, in multiple different locations. 
uh, including um, south of us in the states. Um, just to quickly go over epidemiology, as we always do, uh, it's always of interest. We have seen that we did peak uh, at just under 2,000 cases uh, in Canada, but those numbers have steadily uh, been in decline, and uh, we hope to see that until we get a second wave, and we'll certainly chat about that as we go through. Um, as we all know, the numbers have been particularly high um, in, in Quebec and Ontario. Uh, thankfully, uh, in British Columbia, we've kept our numbers very low with the incredible work from, again, Dr. Bonnie Henry and her uh, cadre of incredible public health officers. Um, and just our communities that have really uh, obeyed the uh, rules of social distancing and have minimized um, our, our numbers so far. And of course, it's to be congratulated, but of course, at the same time, we have to understand that, you know, we always talk about flattening the curve, and flattening the curve, all we're doing is at some point, unless we get a vaccine or get sort of effective treatments, we will eventually see a rise in cases or a continuation of below trickle level of cases. But the whole idea of flattening the curve is so we don't get hit all of a sudden, like they did in, in Italy or in, uh, in China, or as Donish can, as you've heard from Donish talking about how they just got hit all at once and just huge surge in, uh, in numbers where the hospital capacities were overwhelmed. And that certainly led to significant increased uh, mortality that we'll talk about shortly. We just didn't see, luckily, in, uh, and at least we didn't see in British Columbia. Um, in British Columbia right now, so we've had a total of just under 2,800 cases, but what's interesting right now is our numbers in hospital are very, very low, and that's very reassuring uh, for the time being. So we have currently only 11 in hospital and uh, five admitted to the ICU. Uh, the rest of the numbers won't be labor. You hear about them every day, um, but the, the numbers in hospital are very low, and the uh, currently number of admitted ICU patients is also very low. If you look at... Um, at our location, if you look at where the uh, the cases are mostly uh, distributed, uh, we know that uh, Fraser Health took the uh, the bulk of the of the hit, um, and I know Surrey Memorial uh, took most of the patients there, being the the cohort center, the designated cohort center. But there was definitely overlap, especially at the peak, where uh, there were patients at other Fraser Health Authority sites as well. Uh, Vancouver Coastal is uh, is number two. Uh, in terms of um, median age, uh, it's about 50, uh, 51 years of patients that got, uh, got the disease or had the, uh, had the virus, 50% uh, female. And of those uh, cases, 18% were, were hospitalized. And our total number of deaths percentage is about 6%. And median age of death is consistent with many other locations, with the elder population being uh, hit particularly hard. It's interesting, Adam and Donish, if you remember to one of our first webinars, we got a comment from a, from a viewer. This is very much the first, case, first webinar we did, and someone had made a comment um, about how um, this was a disease of, uh, of not everyone, but a disease. There are certain populations that, that uh, were prone to getting hit hardest, and we didn't really think too much of it. At that point, we were thinking that everyone would be hit particularly hard. Uh, but now that I look back at that question and in the last number of webinars, I realized that, in fact, what that very astute uh, person was commenting on is what actually came to pass is that, you know, socioeconomic status, um, ethnicity certainly played into this. Um, and those uh, brave workers, the, uh, the frontline workers, and I'm not talking about healthcare workers, I'm talking about those who work in the grocery stores or those who work in 
minimum wage kind of jobs were forced to go to work either because of their employers or because they just couldn't have the luxury of taking time off work. They didn't have that kind of uh, financial uh, freedom really got struck hard. So again, I just I think back to that. It, it does it does haunt me. Um, and at the end of the day, unfortunately, uh, everyone is particularly vulnerable to this vi virus, but it really does come back to those same unfortunate people that get hit hard by this disease time and time again. And, and certainly, Donish, you can speak to this a bit later on, but uh, or maybe you can now, but I'm sure you've seen that in your, your environment in New York City. Sure, we could talk about essentially the, uh, there's a 20% infectivity rate among MTA or the mass transit workers in New York City, which is incredible. Um, and also uh, among delivery people as well, there's I think a 15% uh, infectivity rate. They just didn't have the ability or the luxury to stay at home or, or socially isolate or socially distance. And again, especially the MTA workers were considered essential health workers or essential workers at the time. So, yeah, back to you, Omar. Um, just to go back to uh, a few cases, again, these graphs all kind of show the same thing. This is the number of hospitalized cases uh, that we, we saw in British Columbia, and you can see at the peak we had just under 150 uh, people in hospital um, by early April and uh, steady decline since then. And then these are the number of uh, patients in critical care in British Columbia, and you can see at our peak we had 72, which, uh, which is actually pretty striking. Uh, given that our uh, ICU capacity often across the province is at 90%, but given what we did uh, by uh, decanting our intensive care units, by canceling elective surgeries, we're able to at least accommodate that surge. But I know that across the, uh, across the province, we are ready for a surge that would be much higher than that in terms of numbers. Um, and the capacity that we built across the province was pretty impressive, both in terms of physical space, but also in terms of human resources to care for these patients as well as ventilators. Um, so we're ready for, for a significantly higher uh, surge than, than what we saw there. Um, I don't know, Pam, I'm going to, maybe you and I can chat a little bit about this. Um, but uh, looking here is just a curve where it's, the next three curves basically look at um, what happens as we release social distancing and how does the curve look. And so we're going to look at you know, social distancing, if we go back to 60% of normal, you'll see sort of that red line. And that uh, red line sort of goes steadily across at a fairly low level. And we really don't expect to see a surge. And at our peak, we think that we were at 30% of normal, so significantly lower. But by doubling it, which is where we're trying to be at now, we're not expecting to see a huge increase in those numbers. If we go to 70%, you'll see that there is a, a bit of an increase there. But um, initially, and then it sort of starts to shoot up a little bit, um, but not necessarily dramatic per se. But if you look at uh, if you look at this next uh, curve here, this is if we go back to 80% of social distancing um, or 80% of normal contact, and you can see that there's a fairly sharp increase in, in numbers there, and uh, and that's obviously something we're trying to avoid, and that's why, of course, Dr. Henry and her team are looking at. Um, you know, just uh, gradual phases of reintroduction to, uh, to socially uh, interacting again. And the idea being that if we do start to see these surges, we can uh, quickly back off. Pam, do you have anything you want to add um, and, um, at this point? And, and same with Raquel. Uh, Omer, it's Pamela. I might. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Thank you. Uh, 
I think by the, the concept of the bubbles, and we're all pretty familiar with bubbles, by joining your bubble with another bubble, we're sort of uh, decreasing our social distancing and permitting that bubble to enlarge. But if there's other bubbles that each bubble interacts with, then you're gradually going to build. You're gradually going to include other members of the population that you know less well, and your chances of bringing COVID into those bubbles that intersect increase. But you just want to do that very gradually because we are very diligent in our contact tracing, which is a key component in a, in BC that's performed so well that within 24 hours. Seven days a week, our, our infection control teams at public health, depending if you're in healthcare or private or in the community, we're able to find those contacts and identify them, usually before they even become symptomatic. Or maybe we find the symptomatic index case for our patient we identified. But as Omar said, if we increase our bubble to be even more of the general population, the numbers of people you contact, subsequently transmit, and our ability to follow become increasingly more difficult. And that's why you see the tail of that red going up. So as long as we have resources now to you know, minimize and manage and follow the contacts, we can gradually, uh, we can gradually accept a couple more cases uh, appearing as compared to what we have now. Uh, as the virus eventually burns out and we, we continue to uh, make accommodations for increasing cases. But it, it'll be nowhere like everything is all off and we all hit the bar. That would be catastrophic. So it's all about merging bubbles and dealing with the hit. Uh, thanks, Pam. Um, and then moving along here. Um, I just want to uh, highlight that uh, we chatted a little bit about uh, flattening the bubble or flattening the curve and, and how that, uh, that impacts the care we can provide. And so there is this uh, article published in, uh, in Canadian Medical Association Journal talking about uh, how the critical care uh, mortality rate in Canada was the lowest ever reported. And at most sites uh, from Italy, from China, it was uh, anywhere from 40 to 50 percent, whereas in uh, in Canada it was only 14 percent, and and uh, I think probably since then it's probably even lower since we've had some successful discharges uh, further to that time, and it just really speaks to probably lots of things, but uh, but certainly speaks to how we uh, we were able to flatten the curve uh, and provide excellent care uh, and individualized care as opposed to being overwhelmed, and I think Donish can talk to how they're often overwhelmed and and the care would often not be. Uh, would be kind of hurt, harried, and, and sometimes provided by non-critical uh, care providers. I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit, Donna, just a brief overview there. Yeah, sure. I think I think uh, flattening the curve is ever so important, especially after our experience in New York City. Uh, we, we essentially just drafted every and any provider to take care of these COVID patients. So I remember one of the um, one of the attendings who was running our general internal medicine team on the floors was a pediatric cardiologist. Uh, just because we needed people to just run teams, and he was running a team of dermatology residents. You can imagine that the care, obviously to no fault of their own, suffered as they're unfamiliar with kind of adult issues and the rest. Um, so flattening the curve is just incredibly important, as well as other ways where we failed with flattening the curve. We saw a failure of flattening the curve was uh, our ability to monitor these patients. Uh, why would you ever need 600 or 700 pulse ox uh, uh, 
pulse oximeters at the same time, right, and having remote access where we could have these pulse oximeters reading outside the room so the nurses wouldn't have to continue to don and doff to go in and check patients. So I cannot speak uh, enough about how important it is to flatten the curve and not allow your, uh, your uh, hospitals to get overwhelmed. Great. Thank you, Donish. Um, and maybe there's a question that uh, we'll maybe get to because we're talking a little bit, and Donish and maybe Katie um, and anyone else can maybe provide a perspective on this, but uh, one of the questions here is, hospital ED shared workstations are poorly designed and provide no social distancing for staff. Masks and eye coverings are not good enough, uh, and they're asking for our comments. And Actually, that might be a good one for Pam as well. I know you spoke to that before. Uh, um, but if somebody wants to take that one on. Well, that's true. Uh, you know, our collaboration centers are uh, meant exactly for that. And so, uh, you know, the peak times of the day, there's, you know, shared computers and people standing over and there's no way that you're two meters apart. But the rule to controlling the, the, the transmission is six, physicians and nurses shouldn't be at work. It's the, it's the primary premise. It's not about masks and social distancing and plexiglass. It's about not being macho, not coming to work when you're sick. We still don't know enough about asymptomatic transmission. And uh, it's something we're learning new with this virus that we believe now that you can be transiently colonized, perhaps even infected with a virus. And and we didn't ever believe before that there was such a state. You always had symptoms when you were in, when you encountered a virus. It, it was almost 100% hit. But now we know perhaps you can have a very brisk immune response and, and actually be positive in the molecular test, which can detect as few as 100 virus particles, which is infinitesimally small. But it doesn't correlate necessarily with transmission. So I think if you're staff are healthy uh, and they're wearing the proper PPE uh, in their collaboration centers and, and attempting to distance, and we have good air circulation, that that's the best that we can do until we get a vaccine. That's certainly a real concern, and I agree with you, Pamela, where there's been two instances at work where I was sitting next to a uh, when my physician's assistant was working, and during throughout the shift, she just kept developing a more and more of a rash. And then a day later, she tested positive for COVID, or one of my fellow intensivists in the office, asymptomatic that first day we were working together in the office, and the next day again, spikes under three fever and is, you know, hospitalized. So uh, definitely concern for sure, and I think proper PPEs always should be worn. But, but can I be on the positive end? that when community spread is not high, I think the example we have since March here in BC is we have very small amounts of healthcare worker infections that now that people are burning out, we're gonna, we hopefully won't see, but we're starting to see long-term care facility and hospital outbreaks. But when you stick to PPE and are very cognizant about that, that it is effective. Well, Adam, yeah. I can just confirm in our health authority, we only had two healthcare workers that were infected with COVID. One was a nurse in emergency department and she likely uh, was infected from her partner at home and she did not infect any of her healthcare worker colleagues uh, in her center. And also we had a laboratory technologist, the same, did not infect any patients, did not infect any colleagues and likely got it in the community. So we got off extremely lucky. I'm sure that um, 
our New York uh, participant can say much differently. I, I will also say, um, if I can add, and I, and I don't know what other people's experience with this is, but I think that part of this, the idea of not coming to work if you're sick um, is, is obviously so important right now, but it's, it's so counter to kind of the long ingrained culture of medicine. We're all so used to coming to work when we're sick. Um, and, and I actually like, I developed a mild sore throat. I had, to, I had to get a COVID test. I had to not come in. And finding coverage, even though we had tried to build in these backup systems and everything, was a real stress and was a real big deal and, and definitely a disincentive, especially if you have mild symptoms. So I think that's something we have to be really cognizant of going forward, trying to really emphasize that we all need to be overcautious with this um, and, and build in those, those backup systems so that it's very easy um, to kind of make the smart choice there. Okay, great. And uh, and again, yeah, just to reiterate what what Pam said. I mean, I know in our ICU we uh, we had a number of cases, and uh, we weren't at a point where we had reached our, our critical tipping point of uh, of uh, seven patients, and when we would shut down our ICU strictly for COVID. So we had a lot of interaction between our COVID nurses and our non-COVID nurses, and and our physicians were were sort of dealing with the entire unit, and and thankfully we didn't have any. Um, any uh, any healthcare spread, so I think it I think again as as everyone said, uh, careful um, PPE use and, and hand hygiene has really proven uh, effective. Um, and uh, so I love this slide here, and I think Jeanette, you're going to uh, you're going to speak to this one. Yes, sorry. Um, so you know when we from the the community community-based physician perspective and primary care perspective. Um, COVID has um, had it both its um, um, challenges and its blessings. And you know, one of them, um, this particular uh, graphic came out of from one of our emergency room physicians who was really noticing the escalating fear, not only um, in uh, people within our community in Nelson, but also uh, fear within healthcare providers. Um, and it really just sort of adds on to what was being mentioned um, around sort of that um, the, the healthcare worker work ethic uh, that exists and this opportunity to pause and really reflect on self-care um, and that those good and positive behaviors that have been happening because of COVID um, are also contagious, as are these acts of kindness that we've been seeing all along. So. Um, you know, one of those key messages I really think is to the importance of, of the modeling that we have that obligation to do as healthcare providers. Um, we, we have that obligation to really reinforce those important messages around social distancing, reinforce, reinforce those important messages around wearing a mask, reinforce those important messages around presenteeism. And when we look at other um, um, sort of added benefits um, or some of these positive unintended consequences when we saw, you know, the rates of flu infections go down because of all of the good hand washing that we've been doing. So how can we really not go back to where we were before, uh, both in terms of our own personal work ethics as, as physicians and healthcare providers, um, but um, this now, this new philosophy and uh, culture of caring for each other that exists both amongst healthcare providers, but also within communities. We've really seen communities rally um, around caring for their, their, you know, caring for the frail elderly, uh, being much more aware of, of each other, being much more aware of the impacts of, of isolation, and how can we maintain and, and continue that? And again, from that primary care perspective, 
We also have to be really reflective and proactive and anticipating some of these unintended consequences that are coming out of the really what was really real and, and essential with the social isolation, with closing everything down, but those impacts of, of the prolonged social isolation, the impacts of poverty, the impacts uh, that we'll be seeing of the prolonged and, and delayed uh, procedures and, and surgeries. And, and we have this window of opportunity right now in anticipation of a second wave um, from, from a primary care perspective to be really reaching out and educating our, our patients around that. And in particular, having care plans in place for people like the frail elderly, mental health and substance abuse, being proactive around that screening. Uh, teens as well um, are very vulnerable right now. Um, and other members of, of um, more vulnerable communities, in particular the Indigenous um, patients and, and that real trauma that may be re-inflicted um, in light of the pandemic, um, we need to be aware of and looking forward. Um, it's really important we don't go back. 90% of family practice um, visits right now are virtual, which has uh, really been a game changer on, in terms of meeting patients where they're at. But we also have to be looking at how we can break down those barriers that some people are experiencing around, um, you know, the rural communities don't always have the bandwidth for, for, virtual, for virtual visits. Um, other, other barriers such as childcare and those sorts of things have really been minimized now with the use of virtual visits so we can't go back to, to where we were before and how can we maintain that vigilance in that regard um, and not lose sight of what's really important. Great, thanks uh, Jeanette. I'm just uh, reloading the slides because I've a few extra ones here. So, um, all right, and I think, is this, uh, is this your slide as well, uh, Jeanette, I think? So from, from, again, from that primary care perspective, um, we're, you know, we're beginning to, people are coming back to their family physicians. Uh, there has been, you know, definitely an increase in, in the, in fragmentation of care. When we, when we look at um, virtual care support resources and supports that have been um, highly and heavily marketed, things like Babylon and Maple, we're seeing further fragmentation of care where people are being, um, uh, lured away from the comprehensive family practice where we know the real value is of, of having somebody who can help them navigate um, some really real and significant clinical care decisions around around COVID and, and decision making and being able to do that with somebody who knows you. So we need to be vigilant around, around um, fragmentation of care and ensuring adequate follow-up. All of those real risks that we're seeing in regards to um, missed, uh, nobody doing the screening right now in terms of FIT or screening mammograms, screening pap smears. Um, chronic disease management um, has been very challenging. People haven't been able to go to the lab, go to the lab for their regular lab work. So um, the doctor is in expanding in-person care is a great resource that was a joint collabor collaboration with the doctors of BC, BC Family Doctors, BC Centers for Disease Control, BC College of Family Physicians, which is really looking at how we can be proactive uh, around reintroducing uh, in-person care when it's needed and some tips and strategies for doing that in a way that is safe both for patients as well as um, physicians, other care providers, and their staff. Uh, tools for virtual management of chronic disease, we're not going back to the way it was, and it would be definitely a mistake to go back to the status quo. Um, but definitely um, right, you know, in the next 12 to 18 months when virtual visits are going to be the standard, um, how can you continue to do really effective high-quality chronic disease management while also ensuring that we're monitoring for those unintended consequences of people having neglected uh, some signs and symptoms, fallen off on their medications, 
um, or, or vigilance around lifestyle, not being able to afford or get out for fresh food and, and vegetables, um, really being reliant upon um, uh, what food is cheap and available um, and stores well is definitely going to have an impact on, on um, some of our chronic diseases and how can we maintain our vigilance with that and take advantage of these teaching opportunities that we have right now. So the Tools for Virtual Management of Chronic Disease is a great resource for that as well. Um, and the doctor is, in, is a, it definitely an, an, an iterative document that we'll be seeing updates um, as further expansion happens as we go. Great. Thanks, thanks so much, Jeanette. And it's amazing to see all the, uh, the novel um, approaches to increase efficiency while, uh, while maintaining safety. Uh, a lot of questions about um, a second wave and, and are we prepared? And, um, we um, will chat about that a little bit now and uh, be interested to hear um, from, uh, from Raquel um, in particular. But is Canada ready for the second wave of COVID-19 was an article published uh, just uh, this week in CMAJ. And it was just an interview with uh, some, uh, some physicians from, uh, from out east and one from UBC. And it's quite an interesting read. Um, but um, curious to hear from maybe Raquel if you want to chat about um, is Canada ready for a second wave? And again, we're sort of hard to speak for the nation uh, in general, but maybe we can, if you want to touch on that, great, but really we'll only hold you to task for, for BC and, and, uh, and other members, of course, welcome to, to hear from, from others as well. And I think, Pamela, you've probably got some good thoughts on this also. Yeah, so I'll only speak to BC because I, yeah, I'm less familiar with what's going on in the rest of Canada, but I think in BC, we're certainly very ready for another wave. We, uh, we've, we all can recognize we've learned so much over this first wave, and we're, we're really working right now on consolidating all the lessons learned so that we can apply them for the future. Uh, there's also been a lot of steps taken you know, province-wide and within health authorities to ensure that we're really ready for the second wave. Um, for for example, creating new positions in the health authority just to just to respond to the to the uh, emergency and to the pandemic. So, I, I think we'll be quite ready. We've done an excellent job so far, and under Dr. Henry's leadership and the Ministry of Health and Minister Dix, I think you know we'll continue to do really well. Great, thank you, uh, Raquel. And um, another question is, uh, so that's just a general question for um, Are We Ready as a, as, a, as a whole. And then maybe, uh, Katie, can you speak to a little bit about Are We Ready as Hospitals? I know that uh, Adam, Donish, and I have spoken a lot. And we can certainly speak to it from an eMERGE and critical care perspective, but maybe you can touch on what uh, uh, it would be like from, from your perspective. But I know from... from Well, for Adam and I, it's very different from, from Donish, but uh, and I, I kind of, you know, Assuming we, we've done some great projections of what we may be struck with, and um, we had initially modeled what we may see based on what was happening in Hubei as well as in uh, northern Italy, and those numbers were quite astronomical of what we'd see across the province. And so we had really ramped up to see that and then had a pretty significant buffer in there for seeing more patients than that. So, you know, we would have the ability to, uh, to certainly ramp up. I think now, as, as Raquel said, we're also much more prepared. We've learned so much. And given that our numbers are so low, if we did start to see a spike, it's something with our monitoring we'd see pretty quickly. And so we'd quickly sort of revert back into our cocoon and sort of probably uh, you know cancel a lot of elective surgeries and, and sort of go back to where we were. But it would, we'd have a bit of time um, to, to do so. But uh, And then um, 
maybe uh, Katie, if you want to speak to how you guys might deal with it from an internal medicine perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think as you say, I think we were very fortunate in that we had a lot of really excellent preparation, uh, and I, I was really impressed with how sort of the health authority and the hospital dealt with things in terms of um, clearing space, the creation of new COVID wards, uh, supporting you know all the the various departments who were involved. So, so a, a lot of that on our end has now been ramped down, and sort of with the caveat that we we know we may need to be ready to sort of re-expand. So I think that. I think that part would be the, the easier part, would be to ramp back up to provide that space in those, in those wards. Um, I think that the more challenging thing would be, as, as Donish was alluding to, the personnel. So if we run into situations of um, you know, needing more, more internists, more healthcare providers than we have, and especially if a lot of staff are, are becoming ill or having to be off work, there were sort of some preliminary plans put in place in terms of what we might do if we had to deal with that, but that that part on our end was not tested. So we've not yet had you know the orthopods come on and like try to do internal medicine, um, but I, I don't know if that will occur. So that's still a question mark, I think. But I think a lot of really great infrastructure is there that could quite rapidly be mobilized if we needed it. Great. I just want to. Uh, sorry, I just want to add one of the one of the things that I think we'd worry about the second wave, in terms of at least from the New York perspective, um, is we very easily can ramp up our resources now. We can ramp up our space. We can make the uh, the additional ICU units. But I think what we're all really worried about is the uh, the uh, the effect on the personnel uh, in terms of the second wave. Because I think now we're starting to see some of the burnout, some of the um, some of the toll that it's taken on some of the healthcare workers. I think a lot of us are just fearing in terms of having to ramp up again and how we'd handle that emotionally in terms of fatigue and as well as fatigue and physically. So I think uh, there's one aspect of it that's certainly resources. The second aspect is just uh, the resiliency of your staff. And uh, Katie, you mentioned uh, orthopods, and one of my uh, Don has told us a lot of interesting things over our. No offense to any orthopods, you guys are wonderful. <laughs> um, but I remember, uh, no, no, I, I don't think they take offense. Uh, they're pretty burly, um, rough, uh, rough and tumble, uh, pretty, pretty heavy. I, I think they're used to, anyways. Um, but I, I think I remember with Donish, I just loved hearing about Donish a few uh, webinars ago about how the orthopods, they had really stepped up and, and uh, bless their hearts, I guess. But uh, they, they, they were the COVID uh, proning team, and they would go around the hospitals proning the patients, and I thought that was pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Um, so we've talked a little bit about uh, the Urban Center, and of course we're uh, we're very lucky to have all sorts of resources here and ability to just call in lots of uh, lots of help and human resources and whatnot. Obviously, a very different perspective for somebody like uh, Jeanette working in a in a rural area. So, Jeanette, how if there was a a surge, um, how would you plan to cope on that in in Nelson? Yeah, one of the sort of ways ways of thinking about rural communities is if you've seen one rural community, you've seen one rural community, and everybody's going to adapt differently. But one, one of the sort of key themes throughout all rural communities is uh, the fact that most of the providers who are working there um, wear multiple hats and serve multiple services. They may be seeing their patients virtually or in clinic as a family physician in primary care during the day and then be working an emergency room shift at night. They may be a GP anesthetist uh, doing intubations, but then may also be the person who's delivering babies. Um, and uh, because of that, it's both a, both a blessing and a curse in that you have a, a much smaller number of providers. And if you have one person go down in your anesthesia service, if you happen to have an anesthesia service, your whole hospital could implode and collapse because now 
you only have two people who are available to cover the emergency department. So the contingency planning is um, super uh, super important and vigilant, and that that willingness to uh, flow between um, between your areas of work and and doing so in a way that is really strategic. So you're minimizing exposure not only of your of your key uh, clinical workers. Um, but also wanting to be able to maintain your level of services throughout. You, you can't, you, you, the Calvary's not going to be coming up from Kelowna or Vancouver to help rescue you if your two OBGYNs are, are both out. So um, the, there's, you know, that much additional need for vigilance around all of the PPE measures around um, the, the presenteeism and not coming in when, you, when you're sick. And one of the, one of the key um, saving graces I've been finding is, um, this sense of trust from, at least in the rural areas, the sense of trust from the health authorities to allow um, the people who are working on the ground in rural facilities to plan accordingly to make sense, what makes the most sense for, for their individual providers. That, so you can adapt to what um, you know, their, their clinical situation is if, they're, if they are um, elderly, if they, they have sick mem family members at home, um, if they are still homeschooling their, their kids, you can, um, it gives us that adaptation and, and that clear willingness and trust from the health authorities to um, get rid of those multiple layers of bureaucracy for us to allow us to plan accordingly is really critical. And that willingness of people to, to um, be flexible and allowing all of us to work at the top of our scope has been key and critical. Um, and you mentioned as well, I think, um, uh, Donish, really importantly, that importance around resiliency. Um, we're in this for a marathon. It isn't a sprint. And having realistic expectations and that self-compassion and being able um, if you're seeing people struggling, speaking up, and granting them permission to to step out and step away, and being willing and to step step into that breach is going to be really critical around um, taking care of ourselves. Thanks, Jeanette, and certainly uh, good advice about the uh, the sprint versus the marathon. And, and that being said, I kind of feel like a lot of people were sprinting uh, up front, and uh, and 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 I think that was great. And I, and I think because there was a lot of um, unknowns, and we were really quite frightened, and uh, and all that sprinting now has allowed us to take a bit of a break, and now we can switch into marathon uh, mode. And as we've heard, we're sort of more prepared for that secondary phase, uh, that second wave. So I feel like that that sprint, we we've done it, and now and now we're into marathon mode for sure. So are you going to say something, uh, Jeanette? Um, the other aspect I was going to add is is um, the, the the challenges that are also experienced by our, our rural patients. Um, when, you know, it is very difficult and challenging sometimes for them to self-isolate. They don't have a convenience store down the street. Um, if they need to self-isolate, if they're having symptoms, it's very challenging for home care to get in to see them. They may not have, as I mentioned, bandwidth and, um, and cell phone service. Um, so meeting people where they're at and, and the types of services and how people access care has been so much more challenging uh, than those experienced, I would have to say, in, in in urban areas, and the, the shift to real-time virtual support has been absolutely critical, and that willingness um, and, and capacity of the Ministry of Health to really focus in on provide, moving in uh, primary care resources and virtual resources to uh, rural and remote communities has been critical and essential. Um, and when for those who are working in urban centers, when you're discharging patients rurally, uh, the challenges of travel and self-isolation, um, it, it's that that much more difficult. Um, you're not going to be able to, you know, the, the access to services is, is more challenging for certain. And again, 
one person goes down, the whole team, the whole service goes down. So being really um, open and clear communication when you're um, transferring people back to a rural center is going to be critical to ensure they're going to get the care they need. Yeah, and I'm not going to go into it too much, but I know that, and thank you for that, Jeanette, there's been, um, you know, increased resources uh, sort of promised to BC Ambulance, including five new uh, air assets for the province. So hopefully that'll really help our, uh, our rural communities, not to take people out of the communities, but to provide care when people are critically ill or they need the support so they do need to move out. And there is uh, some great work done by uh, our rural colleagues, including, I think, Jell Coward. Uh, Dr. Jell Coward's worked on these community cohort centers where patients want and they are feeling unwell, they're getting early symptoms of COVID, they can move to these areas that are closer to the regional hospitals so that if they do get uh, quite sick, it's not as uh, difficult to transport them out. And that sort of applies to some of the very, very remote areas, but there's no, uh, no compulsion on that. Um, so uh, the next two questions are for, um, are, are for Raquel. Um, any suggestions on how we can minimize OD deaths in the context of preventing transmission of COVID-19? Yeah, so maybe I'll just comment on that partly and uh, really appreciate taking the time to draw some attention to the dual overdose emergency, which is happening right now. Um, I just want to note that there's just recent data released from the coroners uh, that shows that there was 170 overdose deaths in the province uh, in May. And uh, those numbers are, you know, on track to, you know, meet the numbers of deaths that we saw at the height of the overdose emergency and you know, exceeds the number of deaths we've actually seen from COVID in the province so far. Uh, so I just, yeah, wanted uh, just to, you know, just some tips, you know, especially for our uh, community physicians out there. Um, I think it's really important just to make sure that uh, to offer as many services as you're able to to people who use drugs and people in these vulnerable populations. These are a really difficult to reach population and uh, yeah, just, you know, encouraging to continue to offer the broad spectrum of services to these populations. And when you do see them, um, you know, try to encourage as much as possible to, for them to access services. I've been hearing so much that uh, people are really reluctant to access services, reluctant to access harm reduction services and overdose prevention services and really just trying to, you know, make sure that people know that these services are still available in their communities and uh, to do their best to, yeah, to, to stay safe during this COVID emergency. We know that COVID has significantly impacted uh, the drug supply, which is, might be leading to all the deaths. And yeah, it's really important to stay safe right now. Okay, thank you, Raquel. And then the uh, second question uh, for you is, yay or nay, should everyone be wearing We gave her the hard one. Sorry, Raquel. It's <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, advice around masks and uh, research and data around masks is continuing to change all the time. But at this time, I, I still uh, support that wearing a mask is, is absolutely a choice right now. It, it can be useful in, you know, very certain circumstances, such as in public places where distancing is really difficult. Um, you know, perhaps in certain workplaces. But really uh, what I'm seeing is that, the, you know, masks are most uh, useful for people who are ill, people who are coughing and sneezing, and, and masks are still most appropriate for keeping the droplets from spreading too far. Um, so those are the situations where I would recommend wearing a mask. But I think it's important to really remember that, uh, you know, until we get further direction from Dr. Henry, mask wearing is still a choice. and uh, 
you know, we should support people regardless of what they choose. I see a lot of, you know, shaming out there uh, for people who do wear masks, for people who don't wear masks, and just want to support, you know, people to just be supported to make the decision that makes the most sense for them. Thanks, Raquel. And the, uh, the third question is for you as well, since you're on a roll here. Do you personally wear a mask when you're out and about? I uh, only wear masks in places where it's required, indoor locations where it's really hard to distance. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, the next question is for uh, Dr. Kipsey. Uh, Pam, should we be doing COVID-19 testing of any asymptomatic people? And if so, whom and when? And I know you've addressed this multiple times uh, at the Island Health Authority level. If you don't mind uh, answering that one, that'd be great. Thank you. Well, the, the transmissibility, the infectivity and transmissibility of asymptomatic shedders is still, still very controversial. And in our province, we, under Bonnie's recommendations, we still are not advocating uh, universal screening, including asymptomatic people as they're admitted to hospital. Uh, the tests were never developed and are certainly not sensitive enough, and specificity is also an issue of false positives when you perform a test in a person who likely doesn't have the disease. So it only tests the person for that point in time, and it's a false sense of security in the hospital, at least, to test asymptomatic patients because they may be symptomatic in a day or two. So we don't advocate doing that. Uh, certainly in long-term care, the approach is quite different. Uh, if you identify a case, uh, the public health recommends testing everybody in that environment and cohorting those, including healthcare workers, and repeating that every five days. And I'm sure as we go into the second wave, we'll be perhaps changing our approach and testing much more even asymptomatic contacts. Um, and we will be surprised, we, we should be surprised because we will find them uh, and what to do with them. Uh, you know, it just echoes back to the Diamond Princess and the, the hundreds of people that tested positive and were required to be hospitalized in Japanese hospitals and prevented from going home and never developed symptoms at all. So, uh, no, I don't, I, we don't recommend it, partly because of the, the, the particulars of the actual tests that we use and also the implications of contact test, the contact tracing. Uh, and we're really not sure that if those people, pro if they practice proper uh, respiratory etiquette, hand washing, uh, you know, maintain their distances to some extent, if they're really capable of infecting other people without directly sharing saliva, like kissing, sharing cigarettes, and so forth. So it's still unknown, but we don't advocate testing asymptomatic. Now, we are being faced as businesses open up of pressures from private industry, employers, sports leagues, and whatever to uh, insist on testing every participant before they play rugby in a, in a tournament or come back to work in their hotel or whatever. And those will be difficult to accommodate in our fragile laboratory system, although we are preparing and have hugely wrapped up our daily testing capacity here in VHA from 500 a day to 2,000 a day by September, but accommodating the private surge will be, have to be met with a fee schedule from the government, we're dependent on that, and uh, some other mechanisms. So yeah, it is a, it's a difficult question to ask, 
Um, and thank, thank you, Pam, and I know it's a difficult one, and I'm going to now put uh, Raquel on the spot as well just to get her, uh, her opinion or her thoughts on that. Yeah, thanks. I agree with Pam, and I think from the public health point of view, we really feel that asymptomatic testing, there's really no need for it. Uh, like Pam said, the negative tests really don't inform us that much. Uh, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that somebody tests negative at one point in time, and we don't know, say, a couple hours to a couple of days later, if somebody who might be incubating COVID might go on to test positive very shortly after the test. Uh, we know that the test isn't the greatest really early on in disease, um, and uh, yeah, it might not give an appropriate result. And yeah, and just to further what uh, Pam said, having a false positive does have significant implications not just for the healthcare system, like she said already, there's significant implications in terms of contact tracing, but I just also want to bring it back to the patient. There's, um, there's also significant implications of a false positive to the patient. It can lead to some, you know, some stigma and shame from, from the patient as well, um, as, you know, especially in times when there's not a lot of COVID going on. And, and uh, yeah, I just want to make sure that we, you know, we do our best for our patients. Thanks, thanks, Raquel. Um, I'm going to throw another uh, question at you, Pam, and uh, and Raquel. Feel free to uh, comment, or any any of our panelists can comment on this. But I've heard uh, you talk about this uh, previously as well, Pam. When do you think COVID-19 antibody testing will be available, and what do you think its value will be? Uh, well, currently, there's a number of initiatives in Canada. First of all, the Canadian Blood Services plans to do a proactive uh, screen of about a million Canadians through, who are donating through the Canadian Blood Services now. And that might give us a little bit of a cross-section of, albeit it's a certain population that regularly donate, it doesn't reflect, you know, older people and children, but it might give us a cross-country snapshot of what's really out there, or what was out there, rather. Um, then there will be another more targeted surveillance that the, uh, the federal government is doing together with the National Microbiology Lab of selected populations as well. In BC, we um, are evaluating a number of instruments. Uh, there's, you know, everybody and their dog has uh, got the sequence for the spike protein, and they all think that they can both make a vaccine and also make an antibody. And not all of them work equally as well. But we know that you probably start to make IgM by about day four. And by day 14, you probably have good IgG response for the most part. So the initial pro uh, testing approach in BC will be to test for total, which is a combination of IgG and IgM, like we often do for hepatitis A. And we will do that uh, first. And then the second line test will be to test for IgG only. Um, so the IgM testing, unfortunately, has not been very consistent, and we find that there's probably some background noise with IgM with other viruses as well as previous human coronavirus infections. So it may not prove to be as useful, uh, and certainly by the time you have symptoms on day four, nearly any laboratory test you use that's NAT-based will be very sensitive. So it's not ever going to be used for acute diagnostics. But it certainly will have a role in lookbacks of some of these patients who have presented late or who have very complex inflammatory presentations. 
uh, GI presentations and cephalopathic presentations that we have been unable to diagnose. We know IgM and CSF, uh, the total in, uh, in CSF is quite useful to diagnose patients who have developed comas and not woken up and were negative by other tests. But the majority of use of serology is going to be primarily for epidemiology and for public health. And, uh, and we, don't, we do discourage using it to inform us about PPE practice, distancing, uh, healthcare exposures, and so forth. We really don't want to send the wrong messages about, you know, a whole group of people that were possibly exposed at work, but more likely exposed in the community when we can't sort that out by healthcare worker serology. Right? So if we ever did those, they'd be anonymized. Uh, so that's so basically in BC, we don't think it will be health authority based. It will be centrally done, likely to be available within the next month or so. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I think there's uh, a lot of questions about uh, treatment. So why don't we jump into that, uh, and then we'll come back to, um, to some other questions we have here that uh, I think we're going to have Jeanette answer. But uh, maybe Adam and Katie, do you guys want to uh, take on the next few slides? And of course, uh, uh, others can, can speak to their experience. And Donna should be interested as we go through to speak about your experience about all the different medications that you've seen trialed and the enthusiasm that you've seen on the front lines in New York City. But uh, Adam and Katie, if you guys want to uh, just to take it away on, on therapy, that'd be great. Thank you. Why don't I take the $8 treatment and Katie can take the $50,000 treatment. So. Um, I think you guys have heard in the last 48 hours the recovery trial uh, results got sent to the news media. Um, I want to back that up for the ethics for a second. I think a lot of people are giving uh, these amazing clinicians and scientists a lot of unfair uh, heat. Um, these are very good clinicians. They're very good trialists. And they just did a trial of 12,000 COVID patients. Um, so take that with a grain of salt. We don't have the actual study, but we have their protocols been published on both the trial website and clinicaltrials.gov. So you're looking at more than 12,000 patients in 175 National Health Institute hospitals in the UK. And the punchline here is A, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, but more importantly, B, dexamethasone, uh, which we had a signal before this in uh, the DEXA ARDS trial that had 30% viral pneumonias. Uh, has a benefit and maybe a quite a large benefit in patients requiring respiratory support, namely mechanical ventilation. So you look at it, mortality uh, in usual care, 40% in more mechanically ventilated patients, which is double our current um, usual care. And then the dexamethasone six milligrams a day arm uh, with mechanical ventilation is 29%. So that's a big reduction. So. Uh, it doesn't help anybody who's not on oxygen. That's dexamethasone. We will have the trial hopefully out in a big journal sometime uh, in the coming days. Now, Katie, you get to remind us of Kaletra and remdesivir. So just in summary, steroids maybe, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, no. Yeah, Adam took the cheap trial that's effective. I get to tell you about the very expensive drugs that probably don't work. Um, so we'll start off with remdesivir. So back a while ago, if you go to the next slide here, there's a trial by Wang, and you guys may remember this as being, oh, more dexamethasone. Uh, yeah, you may remember this um, published in The Lancet 
basically looking at remdesivir for moderately ill patients that depending both the bivendesivir, and this was fairly unexciting. The primary endpoints were negative, though there was sort of a trend towards the shorter time to clinical improvement, uh, 21 days versus 23 days. Now, this trial was underpowered and stopped early because it was done by a Chinese group, uh, and they, they essentially the uh, cases in their area became under control with all of the, the lockdowns. So this was, I think, March, April. This was a while ago. And then Fauci got on TV and, and kind of teased us all with a positive trial about remdesivir, again, in a press release that was slightly less sort of kosher than the press release we just had with dexamethasone. Um, but that was recently published as the ACT-1 trial. Uh, so that was, if we go to the next slide here. Uh, so that was, again, a trial of, here we go, uh, remdesivir in patients with COVID-19. Again, 10 days of IV, IV remdesivir. And here they did find a significant improvement in their primary endpoint, which is time to clinical recovery. So 18 versus uh, 14 days in the, or sorry, 11 days versus 14 days um, for the remdesivir group. A couple of caveats with the methodology of this trial. So they did change their primary endpoint partway through the trial in that it was initially supposed to be um, at 15 days improvement on an ordinal scale. However, with evolving knowledge about COVID and the often protracted course, this was changed. And the other limitation is that this data set and this publication is actually um, data before all of the full follow-up is completed. And the author sort of stated that because they thought that this was such a significant result, they felt it was important to present it. So all the patients had been enrolled, uh, but we will be getting more data after all the follow-up is completed. So this is a positive trial. Overall, uh, so I should say there is no difference in mortality. You may be interested in that sort of 7% versus 12%. Uh, but it's a bit misleading that they publish it at 14 days because you ask, if you actually look at the uh, Kaplan-Meier curves in the paper, they do start to come together with time. Um, so really the end result here is that remdesivir has not shown any, any impact on mortality. Probably my take, and I, I think a lot of others share this view, is that it, it may be sort of like an ocetamivir, a tamiflu, in that it may slightly shorten time for recovery in patients, but I don't think that it's going to especially for uh, critically ill patients, um, have any influence on mortality. Uh, so I'll, I'll let others perhaps touch on this later, but we are not routinely using it, certainly, in our admitted ward, ward patients. No, they even uh, think we can get access in Canada. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and then the final drug to touch on quickly is, I don't think we have a catchy name for this, but this is a Calitra, so Lopinavir Ritonavir in combination with interferon and ribonavir. Uh, so you may remember way back in, in early on in the COVID, COVID epidemic, there was a trial of lopinavir ritonavir published in Medgem, uh, and that was negative and unexciting. And then I feel like we all forgot about this drug for a while. And then quite recently, just at the end of May, this was published. And the rationale for combining it with these two other therapies is that this is previously shown to have some uh, efficacy in, in SARS and MERS. So there was sort of biologic plausibility. Um, and in this trial, they essentially gave patients uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, uh, ribavirin, and then if they presented in the first seven days of their symptoms, they got up to three doses of interferon beta. Uh, that was admitted for patients presenting later because of a fear of patients being in this immune hyperactive, uh, 
hyperactivation phase and actually exacerbating things. Um, and the bottom line here is that they, they did find a positive result. So their primary outcome was a faster time to a negative slog. Uh, and they found an improvement here in the triple therapy group with seven versus 12 days. And they did also find some improvements in their secondary outcome, which was sort of improved time to SOFA scores of zero and shorter hospital stay, although because of small numbers, so this is kind of 120 patients-ish, uh, those were not significant. So one study, uh, certainly not definitive at this point, but perhaps something to keep an eye on in future. Anything you want to add there, Adam? No, I think antivirals, uh, in general, it's hard for them to work, right? Because just like Pam and, and Raquel have said, that being able to pick up somebody early in their disease course when the virus is replicating the most, uh, when those drugs are going to be the most effective, is very difficult. So just a summary, hydroxychloroquine, out. Remdesivir, sure, but super expensive and maybe not going to do a lot for patient-oriented outcomes. But in the uh, scenario for which you're hit and hammered like New York, maybe that'll work at assistance levels. So, Donish, um, plasma, TOSI, steroids, antivirals, what are you guys doing since you've experienced all this? Because we don't so do anything here. Yeah. Sure. So li literally, yeah. literally everyone's getting remdesivir who qualifies with the with the appropriate renal function. Um, whenever convalescent plasma is available, they will get it. Literally throwing everything at its mother at these patients. The most commonly used are remdesivir and the uh, convalescent plasma. Early on, we were trying TOSI. Um, we ran out of TOSI. Went to Anakinra, um, which was more of an IL one, I believe, blocker, and then. Um, now back to steroids, but it's literally been everything, um, and it's just been this rotating uh, mix of treatments. And I'm, I'm hoping the dexamethasone will be uh, will be one that sticks and hopefully helps. But I guess we'll find out shortly. But just been just never ending uh, carousel treatment so far. I remember at uh, one site, uh, Donish, you were talking about, uh, and I can't remember the uh, the hospital name now, Lexington or um, right. And you were talking. You, they were talking about how they were giving uh, massive doses of steroids and uh, and TOSI and had done that for uh, for a few weeks, had good results, and that kind of went by the wayside. And I think sort of you can speak to this, but sort of how we've tried all these different things, and at the end of the day, it comes down to what we think we've always done right is just good standard care for our uh, our sick critical care patients. And I think that's what we talked about earlier on, and that that article from Dr. Grisdale and Anish Mitra and colleagues um, talking about how our mortality rates in BC are so low from critically ill patients. So I don't know if you have any comments on that or if you sort of come full circle to, you know, sort of providing the same care you did before COVID. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something I just always used to emphasize is good care is good care is good care. And we do know what good critical care is. And that's kind of going to be the basis of any treatment that we have for these critical COVID patients. But um, it seems like it has come full circle in terms of steroids. Um, but it did seem like early on, anecdotally, there was a signal to steroids being beneficial. And then um, since there's no evidence on a systems level at that hospital, they stopped using the, uh, the tocilizumab as well as the, um, I forgot what they're using, methylprednisolone when they were doing their, uh, their massive steroids. Um, and they just kind of try and, um, they try and make their, uh, they tried to make their practice more evidence-based with the whole system in Northwell. So even though Lennox may have been seeing some early results with the, uh, the steroids and their TOSI combo, they were kind of uh, shut down and went more back to an evidence-based uh, approach, which again, was just good critical care and then trialing uh, the convalescent plasma and the remdesivir and the rest. 
but seems like we're going right back to the steroids. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I agree with what Adam said. He's, uh, you know, the, the, the folks who are uh, running the recovery trial are receiving a lot of heat for just, you know, putting out this uh, this newsletter or this uh, communique talking about their results. But I think it's it's pretty impressive because it's unlike remdesivir, which is, you know, thousands of dollars, um, steroids are, are relatively safe. Um, you know, we're using them more and more. And I mean, Adam Donish and I can speak to this in the critical care setting. I've been using steroids for years. And, as time goes by, I've been using them more, and Adam and I were working together last week, and we, we went pulse two patients, uh, you know, sort of speculatively, because we thought one had HLH, and it turns out that was the case, and I, I can't remember now, we had so many cases, the other one we pulsed two, and they both did quite well, but we haven't seen people's blood sugars going to, into the thousands or something, and their heads popping out from, uh, from hyperglycemia, and nor have we seen people losing their hips from avascular necrosis or anything like that. So I think using DAX, which is a cheap uh, cheap drug, it makes sense in the context of the physiology, pathophysiology we understand of, of the inflammatory syndrome. It makes a lot of sense. And again, these, these um, authors, I think they're pretty brave to sort of put out these pretty impressive results for a drug that's very cheap and, and, and quite safe, uh, generally speaking. So we'll see what happens, but looking forward to seeing those uh, those results published. But sounds pretty impressive. Randomized clinical controlled trial with uh, thousands of patients. So I don't know if Adam or Katie, you want to have any other thoughts on that, but um, happy to hear yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's very interesting, and as you say, steroids are certainly um, quite commonplace in in critical care, but it certainly is not something that is typically part of our practice in sort of ward pneumonia patients. So I do think it's it's quite interesting, and, and I'm really interested to read the full results. So I think that actually would be a, a very big practice change for us. Um, and I know there's been a lot of discussion around sort of the optimal timing of steroids, and not wanting to necessarily give those too early in the viral course for fear of worsening viremia. Uh, and when is sort of that that magic time? Um, and maybe it's when patients are coming to the ward and needing some supplemental oxygen, but that's something that we have not done yet. So it potentially actually could be quite a big change for us. So I'm quite interested to see um, the full results and, and kind of those details around around timing. So I have to pay homage to Dave Sweet and the um, Provincial Therapeutics Committee here, because I think that's a major reason why our mortality is so low. Outside of a clinical trial, there is nothing recommended in this province other than supportive care, including steroids. So if you have an indication for asthma, COPD, severe sepsis, yes, steroids. But all the antivirals, everything else outside of a clinical trial, I just want to reemphasize, given the literature review that we just gave you, there is no reason you should change your practice. So that's answering the question, just to make Bob happy. That question, that's the updated therapeutics. Thanks, Omar. No, that's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, and along those lines, the other question, uh, maybe, Adam, if you want to take this on, um, what are the guidelines for nebulizer use, both in the ER and on the ward? The same they were before COVID. NEBs are inferior to MDI. That's all I'm going to say, is that we use them because they're easier to use. But if you want to talk about dispersion and infection risk versus drug delivery, MDIs are already superior. So you should be using MDIs and arrow chambers. That's the easiest way to answer that question. Um, and I'm not going to contradict you on that, 
Um, but I will add one practicality to that because I know early on, um, and I don't think this came to uh, to play in any centers that I'm aware of, and certainly not at my center here. But there was a significant concern for a shortage of uh, of MBIs, and at uh, at one point here uh, on in Island Health, we were down to I think it was down to five days worth of supplies for uh, for MBIs, and so in that particular context, hopefully we won't have that supply issue problem. But with our low prevalence here at Island Health, we said we just be we need to be rational, and with our very low rates, that if you think somebody has a simple asthmatic exacerbation or a COPD exacerbation, and there's a pretty good story that this is how they always present, then go ahead. If you need to, if you can't get a, if you can't get an MBI, then in those cases, nebulizers are safe. But the feeling is that probably um, they haven't really, uh, probably not safe for us to blanket statements say that nebulizers are, uh, are are fair game in patients who do have COVID. So if you are concerned of COVID, they need to be either in a negative pressure room or at least in a room that can be contained. Some centers were looking at, and we've heard about this uh, not only in Canada but internationally, that they're actually setting up tents where these patients would go outside, get their nabs away from the, uh, the general population so there wouldn't be a concern of potential spread uh, to others. Um, and I'm Omar, not sure. Yes, Pamela, can I ask can you I want to comment on that? Add some, yeah, add something to nebulizing and also to throw in CPAPs and things in, in PAR, post-op, and for in other situations. The COVID has really changed our perspective about PPE. So when Adam says, well, it's business as usual, a lot of things will never be business as usual as before. So... Of course, if you do your risk assessment or the patient is under investigation for COVID, as you said, it's full PPE, including N95. A private room is not possible for N95, which it might be difficult to maneuver just for the process of the nebulization. But if you've done a risk assessment, and this even applies to long-term care where nebulized drugs are quite common, uh, you will always now wear a mask and uh, eye protection. So you don't want to get their multi-drug resistant pneumococcus or the influenza or the other gram negatives that they have that might come out in the nebulization. So the one thing that is business as usual, but there's a little bit of a twist to it, and now it will, you will be as a care provider always be wearing some uh, facial protection against droplets uh, if you're going to do nebulization. That's the new norm. Very good point. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Pam, uh, for always keeping us honest. I, I absolutely appreciate it. Thank you. Um, next question is for uh, Jeanette. Uh, Jeanette, any suggested pearls on how to best provide maternity and newborn care in the office? Yeah, that's been um, something that's been very challenging. Um, the most people uh, who do maternity care are familiar that the SOGC had um, and the um, perinatal services BC had suggested an altered prenatal visit schedule. Um, and that's been very challenging. Um, it's not meeting the needs of, of women and families in particular. Um, they want to hear their baby. They want to know their baby's growing. Um, it's very challenging in that altered, um, suggested altered schedule, schedule to try to get all of the important teaching and, and informed choice to conversations 
uh, done in that altered schedule. And, and ultimately, most people who are providing maternity care have, have adapted that to meet the needs of their particular uh, community. Um, so basically, the, the main approach that, uh, that is, um, most are taking is trying to minimize the amount of in-person time as much as possible. If you're not, I mean, and sometimes that means, you know, perhaps expanding the, the, the duration in between visits, but more importantly, doing as much as you can on the phone or it with a virtual meeting ahead of time. And then for maternity care, just having a very quick um, belly check where you listen and measure, do blood pressures. There's, there's a lot of concerns around missing some of those silent presentations in maternity care, such as um, you know, early preeclampsia if they're asymptomatic, but their blood pressures are rising, um, and you know, you're, um, you're, it's difficult for them to get to the lab to do, to do um, any of that screening blood work, gestational diabetes as well. Um, uh, missing opportunities to, to do the, the symphysis bundle height measurements. So as much as you can virtually, uh, and then have a quick, you know, five, 10 minute appointment, belly check appointment. Um, it allows for that hands-on touch, uh, you know, you, that worry about miss, missing breach presentations as well when you're not doing that in-person visit. Um, there's all of these unintended consequences that are coming out uh, with that. Um, so in terms of having them in the office, um, definitely quick visit as much as virtual as you can, having a, a specified room, um, all of the things that we were doing in the office otherwise, staggering appointments, having them wait in the car if they have a car, then calling them to come in. Um, hand washing um, and quick quick visits. It's very easy to do safely, um, and it definitely helps to mitigate a lot of that anxiety women are women our families are beginning to feel around maternity care because they're feeling disconnected from their care providers with that altered schedule. So feel free to adapt that altered schedule as much as you need to to meet the needs of their patients and be super vigilant. If you have a sense that this person needs to be seen more often, trust that instinct. Um, and be very proactive in terms of, of the um, questions around inter, uh, intimate partner violence, um, stress and anxiety. A lot of this is coming, women are saying, well, of course I'm worried, of course I'm anxious, but you know, we're definitely gonna be seeing increased incidences of postpartum uh, depression and all of the associated stressors with that and stress-related illness and impacts on, on, um, on parenting as well. In regards to newborn care, that's another area where there, a lot of people are concerned that um, newborns and children are falling through the cracks, in particular uh, with breastfeeding and newborn waking. Again, very low threshold for in-person visits for that. Um, you could do a lot of conversations over the phone, asking you know the questions around bleeding and lochia and how they're doing and how the sleep is, but definitely not you know uh, for certain uh, in-person visit for a weight check in the first. Um, first seven days and then following up based upon your clinical intuition after that with a very low threshold um, for bringing in an in-person visit. Um, certainly in rural communities and even um, in-person um, other communities, um, having them do weights on their own. It's not just you know using their scale and with and without baby and doing the measurements, but so many people now um, have scales or if they're a fisherman, fish scales, and you could do a lot of uh, weight checks that way with babies. Um, public health isn't as reliable right now um, in terms of, of being proactive in, in reaching out uh, to families. So um, you, taking you, making use of your phone calls uh, for that. Uh, well child visits, um, a lot, you can do a lot of well, most of the well child, child visits uh, virtually or over the phone. Um, virtual is great because you can see parental interactions. 
So encouraging them to, to do Zoom appointments to do that very important uh, child health screening and take advantage of every single opportunity you have um, to promote the importance of maintaining their, their usual vaccine schedule um, and that it's safe to do so. Um, public, um, you can do it in your office if your office is one that does do immunizations, but public health has put in tremendous safety protocols uh, to make it safe for people to bring their, their children in for their um, immunization schedule. Awesome. Thank, thanks, Jeanette. And uh, you mentioned uh, the word unintended consequences, and that's our, uh, our next slide here. And there's certainly, um, you know, maybe some of the panelists can speak to this, but there's been a lot of unintended consequences that, uh, that we've seen and, and heard about. And certainly, Adam, Donish, and I can speak to it from an emergency medicine and, and critical care perspective. I'm sure Raquel has lots of examples as well. What we talked about earlier, and Katie, of course, uh, and Pam, we, uh, we chatted earlier about overdoses, and we've certainly seen spikes in, in, in cases of overdoses. There's been uh, cases of increased uh, suicide, uh, depression, um, uh, domestic violence, um, and then, of course, people now uh, afraid to bring their kids in to get, uh, to get immunized, so lots and lots of uh, unintended consequences. I know firsthand as an emergency medicine physician and a critical care specialist, we've seen a lot of delayed presentations to the emergency departments and people coming in quite late into their disease and uh, actually had uh, a few deaths as a result of patients that I feel very strongly that would have been salvageable if we didn't, uh, if we didn't, um, if they didn't present so late. Um, and uh, Jeanette just mentioned here that there's also a significant increase in the number of made uh, requests as well. So. Uh, a lot of a lot of interesting things there. Um, yeah, any other uh, comments from uh, from Katie or uh, Raquel or Pamela in particular from your perspective? I think just as you said, there's been um, both a lot of people presenting delayed to hospital or um, suboptimally managed as as an outpatient. And I I do mostly inpatient care, but some outpatient as well. And it has been really challenging. Um, a lot of patients that, that we see in general and telemedicine outpatient clinic are complex, multimorbid. They have heart failure, they have renal failure, they have valve disease, and it's really hard to assess them over the phone or via Zoom. Um, so, so we are trying now, especially ramping up, to, to bring some of those people in to the office when needed, but, but even then there's a lot of hesitancy in patients. I've had some patients who don't want to come into the office uh, and then have ended up in hospital later. Um, so certainly it's been challenging. I think everyone is, is really doing their best, but um, it has been hard to not be able to provide care in the usual avenues. Great, thank you, uh, Katie. And then just in um, while we're talking about unintended consequences, maybe I'll, I'll uh, address this question here. Is could you clarify if CPR is an AGMP or not? And um, you know, first of all, we we just don't know the answer to that, and and uh, we just don't have any consensus um, across the board. And if you look at uh, BCCDC, and I know Adam and I were part of the uh, the committee that sort of made the recommendations for for CPR, whether it's an AGMP or not. There's a lot of, um, and what we think we are at this point suggesting it is. Uh, but if you look at other provinces such as Alberta and Ontario, they are it is not listed as an, as an AGMP. And with the many things uh, that we are doing right now, we just don't know. We don't have good evidence. Now there's some cadaver um, small studies, there's some sort of simulation studies looking at doing CPR and, and seeing the, um, that there is uh, aerosolization of particles, but does that actually apply in the human case? We don't know. Um, 
And so again, we discussed this at length at our uh, provincial working group for critical care. And at the end of the day, our conclusions were to be on the conservative side and, and treat it as an AGMP. But uh, we, we are suggesting putting on a mask um, at the least, if you're gonna do CPR, put on a mask, but others should have, uh, should have PPE ideally, and that's certainly my practice. Um, but again, there's unintended consequences, which are huge to that. And uh, you know, I think early on when there's a lot of irrationality, a lot of people thought everyone had COVID. And so there are people that may very well have suffered from not getting CPR in time. And of course, we know that each minute they don't get CPR, you're, uh, mortality is going through the roof, and certainly your your disability is also increasing, even if we do get you back. So, um, in in our um, so for now, it is an AGMP here. Is it truly? We don't know. Um, but just uh, if you do have a patient that arrests, hopefully uh, we'll know in advance that they're not um, COVID, and you can go in and do your uh, your CPR as per uh, as per normal, but put a put a mask on the patient regardless. As Pam said, it's it's not really business as usual. So in the past, we would just go in and start doing CPRAS, you know, right away. But I think we put masks on these patients because we really don't know what we're being exposed to. Um, so a couple of questions now for uh, Raquel. Um, what advice do we have for patients traveling back into BC from other provinces, for example, Quebec or Ontario, with higher numbers of COVID cases? Um, should they go into quarantine for 14 days? Can they return to work within 14 days of return? Yeah, so right now in BC, we have no restrictions for travel within Canada. So uh, people are free to travel to any of the provinces or territories in Canada, including those with higher uh, rates of COVID. And there's no need to isolate uh, when you come back. Although as usual, we still encourage you to continue to symptom monitor really closely. Um, however, I know that there are some provinces and territories that have uh, implemented uh, isolation periods for their, if you travel to their provinces. Um, I know, for example, I think Quebec has had this and the Yukon has had this and maybe others. So uh, I know many are working to remove these, uh, uh, these criteria. So I just advise if you do travel to other provinces, just uh, take a look to see what their requirements might be of you. Um. Thank you, Raquel. And the next question is also uh, for you, Raquel. What is the public health definition of recovered from COVID-19? Does it include a return to full function? Uh, so for us, for the most part, recovered just, uh, just means it's been 10 days since the onset of, of symptoms. So for people with just, you know, usual symptom uh, you know, progression, uh, people who aren't hospitalized have been, that have been able to be managed in the community, uh, we count them as recovered if it's been 10 days since the start of symptoms, and there's been no worsening of symptoms uh, in that time period. For, uh, for patients who've been hospitalized, the definition might differ, and it's usually kind of at the judgment of, of the medical health officer, knowing that, you know, people with more significant symptoms that have been hospitalized or in ICU might be infectious for longer, and so we might count them as recovered uh, quite a bit later. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's not it's not necessarily return to full function. It's just people who are you know recovering and least likely to be infectious. Okay, thank you, uh, Raquel. Um, the uh, another question. I, I'll, I'll sort of bring it out there, but I, I don't think any of us really know the answer to this. Um, and again, Raquel, I don't uh, expect you to answer this one because we, we did give full disclosure. We're only going to talk about uh, about BC. But uh, the question here is, Ontario and Quebec are opening up and cases are going down. Why? 
And uh, I'm not going to necessarily try and address that question other than to say that I know that certain municipalities in Quebec have actually seen a, a slight surge in cases and, and they have had to back down a little bit from what I've, what I've read. But I'll sort of go to the New York experience and just the, the, the American experience and with all the, the protests that have been going on, and I'm not so much talking about the Black Lives Matter protests right now, but if we go back even about uh, three, four uh, weeks ago when people, we saw all that footage of people protesting uh, against being on, in lockdown and, uh, and how that would impact um, the, the cases. It was interesting. I thought we'd see a huge surge immediately, but we didn't actually see it. But it about, took about three weeks, and now we see one of the sites, uh, such as Florida, where there were, that was one of the earliest places that we saw protests in quite large numbers. If we see now, their, their numbers have surged significantly, and they've had the highest numbers they've seen the entire time just in the last week or so. So, I, I mean, I, I'm not an epidemiologist, and I'm not by any means a public health op, a worker um, or officer of health, but I certainly think that all of this exposures is going to have uh, an impact. And again, we're seeing that in the States. And I don't know, Donish, if you want to speak to what the uh, New York experience is, because there's been, uh, again, a lot of protests. Um, and then, of course, uh, like you said, now there's a protest in regards to all the horrendous uh, killings and, and the social um, upset, understandably, uh, but there's, it's leading to a lot of uh, lack of social distancing. So I don't know if it's impacting you there in New York, Anish. I think it's tough to say. I think we're all, I think there's a couple of things to address there. I think we're all definitely frightened for a second wave coming around because of this lack of social distancing and what have you. Um, but we haven't really seen a surge. Uh, I think we're down to our last eight patients were, were hospitalized at Mount Sinai. That's down from like a peak of about 500 with about 162, 163 were vented at our hospital alone. Now we're down to eight uh, hospitalized COVID patients. So we haven't kind of seen that surge or that effect of uh, these, these large-scale demonstrations. And then the second issue I'd want to address is something you kind of talked about earlier on, and it was a question we had earlier on in COVID, uh, with our COVID seminar or webinars, was uh, we're seeing the inequities that exist within the U.S. just uh, hyper-magnified here. And I think a lot of my colleagues, I know for a fact, are viewing that as a public health crisis. And so not only are we seeing the hospitals in support of, the, uh, in support of these protests of Black Lives Matters uh, in particular, we're also seeing a lot of physicians come out there, and we're seeing movements like White Coast for Black Lives. We even had a, you know, Mount Sinai had uh, our own protest uh, in, in solidarity with these with these groups um, uh, last week, and, and and ballooned up to five thousand alone from our hospital. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I think I, we haven't seen. So I guess the, to summarize, we haven't seen that big wave of cases after these protests, and I and I do think that it is. Um, just uh, underscores kind of the inequities in the U.S. and it's hard as a physician not to uh, want to be a part of the solution or at least uh, continue to ag agitate for change. Uh, thank, thank you, Donish. And um, the next question maybe I'll, uh, I'll try and answer in, in, um, with some support from Pam and, and Jeanette. Um, so it, it, uh, it reads, I work in a small rural hospital Please update us on recommended best practices for management of patients in the ER and hospital to minimize transmission of COVID-19. 
And uh, I can start, but I'd be curious to see if, Jeanette, if you know much about what's going on in, in Nelson. I know, Pam, we've done a lot of work on this together as well. But, uh, you know, I, I know for Island Health, it's, it's a big, it's really challenging because we are, we're sort of opening up our services. We're doing, um, you know, starting to do procedures, and, and a lot of rural sites will do procedures and whatnot. And so you've got patients coming back in. And prior to us sort of uh, opening things up a little bit, we had closed our departments and we had sort of had the, you know, the green zones, the red zones, uh, the warm zones, the cold zones, however, they were sort of divided into areas where basically essentially non-COVID and COVID areas. And, and that was great. And anyone with respiratory symptoms went into sort of COVID area and then the non went into the non-COVID area. And it's very easy to do. But now we're finding as our volumes are going up and all the patients are returning to the departments, uh, it's very hard to have that separation, especially in rural sites where you might only have four or five, maybe 10 beds. So how do you siphon off X amount of beds, you know, it, it adds up to a significant percentage pretty quickly. And so we certainly are struggling with this in Island Health. And, uh, you know, we're sort of looking at trying to be as, um, as innovative as we can and trying to get support from hospital administrators to sort of say, look, we've sort of used your ambulatory care areas. Can we still continue to use a portion of it? We've looked into having trailers and tents set up outside on sort of a more permanent uh, ongoing basis. Um, there's a lot of folks that are uh, being triaged and then waiting in their cars, which, uh, which is great for social isolation and, and distancing. But of course, the concern is that someone go to their car and then they get sick. We can't really monitor them. Um, so there's a lot of, lot of things being trialed, but there's no real great solution. And uh, I don't know, Pam or Jeanette, if you want to add something. Um, and maybe we'll start with you, Jeanette, from the, uh, from the Nelson perspective, if you know what you guys are doing locally. Um, there, it's it, there's a lot of dependence on that interplay between community-based care and, and the emergency departments. Um, you know, really effective triaging is important. We do have the ambulatory respiratory assessment clinics that are, that are still uh, available. So anybody who is having respiratory symptoms goes to these uh, clinics that are, um, you know, cut off um, from the main emergency department. Certainly, the challenges that you're speaking to is as ER volumes are increasing and that, that uh, floor space becomes quite, quite timely um, is critical, um, but also that it really significant importance to maintain that vigilance and, and not letting your guard down um, with that. So, um, you know, a lot of emergency departments are continuing to, to go through the simulations around intubations, um, patients flow through um, with that, but it's, it's it's definitely challenging, um, and it's you know I, I just think that that the importance of, of repetition, the importance of accumulation, the importance of keeping um, maintaining maintaining your your vigilance and and skill set um, is is ultimately where it is. Um, I the the challenge absolutely is is trying to balance that with the, all of the other emergency department presentations, um, and and when you have a low level of, of penetrance within your community, uh, and you can and you have a, a minimal number of providers as most rural emergency departments do, you don't have you no longer have the luxury of having like a, a respiratory team um, as you did before. So um, it's. It's an ongoing challenge, and it needs to be continuously adapting. And I think the importance of that clear and open communication with the health authorities is going to be critical as we move forward. Uh, thank you, Jeanette. And certainly, yes, you're right. Like the, the whole vigilance idea is, is extremely key because we, we do, you know, eventually there's there's other things happening, and we do forget about it. So 
having that vigilance because it'll just take one or two cases that we miss and all of a sudden, yeah, we, we've got an outbreak, uh, a little cluster developing. Um, all right, so this next question we will uh, have Raquel uh, do her best to answer. And I don't know if there is an answer for this question. It's a, it's a great question. Uh, with the current situation of social change and protests, how can we advise our patients who want to participate in a safe way? Yeah, I think the protests and encouraging social change is a really important issue. And, you know, racism and, and change is, is absolutely a public health issue. And we know that it contributes uh, to inequities in health and illness and death. So yeah, we, we certainly want to encourage people to protest and, and support this movement in the right way. Um, you know, some things that people can do, you know, really using social media and the internet as a way of, uh, of trying to encourage change and, you know, working within your own networks and, you know, encouraging the conversations there as well. And, uh, you know, for people that do want to join the protests um, out in public, uh, you know, please, you know, consider wearing a mask and trying your best to, to distance from others. And, uh, you know, don't go out to protest if you're feeling sick at all are really the best things that you can do right now. Great. Thank you. Um, thank you, Raquel. Um, so we're going to, there's been a bunch of questions about, uh, about pediatrics, which is, uh, which is great because uh, that's what our next two slides on. Um, I think um, everyone's kind of washed their hands of this one, so I'll probably take this on. Um, Adam's, uh, Adam's laughing at me there, but I think uh, Jeanette uh, would also probably be the most uh, most qualified. But uh, so maybe Jeanette and I we can chat a little bit about this, perhaps. But uh, so very interesting. I mean, there's multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children that we've we've all been hearing about, and initially we sort of thought it was. Uh, an uptick in, in cases of Kawasaki's, but then there was such a, a great uptick that it was actually not in keeping with just what we the normal uh, frequency we'd see of, uh, of Kawasaki's. And the other thing that was quite interesting about this was we we're seeing this in an older cohort of patients that typically we saw, you know, Kawasaki's sort of peak around the age of three, whereas in this particular disease that we're seeing now, uh, it's more sort of a bit older, five to seven. And um, some possibility that may even be seen in, in kids up to up to 18 or 19. So fairly uh, fairly uh, fairly broad range of uh, of ages. Um, and uh, so here's the definition here, and it's just taken just from the BC CDC website. And again, you got to take this with with a bit of caution to start off with the proviso that this is being reported, but it's still pretty rare. Um, but the idea being that if you do see a kid with that uh, with a fever. Um, and that has some features that may suggest Kawasaki's either what we say typical, which has all the features, or atypical, has some of the features, you know, really have a heightened suspicion. And what does that mean? That means, you know, really getting in contact with some of your pediatric colleagues. So if you work in a, in a rural center, having that call out to BC Children's Hospital and saying, hey, I've got this case, can I run it by you? It also means we're going to be perhaps testing patients a bit more with blood work. We tend to try and avoid doing blood work. I mean, a bunch of us here have kids. Um, and we hate to see our kids sort of be poked and prodded, and it makes us very upset. And we don't like to see them cry. And we always, as clinicians, we're all about you know making sure we're we're efficient um, utilizers of our system and not uh, not sort of doing tests that aren't going to add much value. But in this particular scenario, you know, with heightened vigilance, something to think about. And again, by all means, if you're if you're uncertain, call call for call for help. 
uh, and get some advice from uh, from a colleague. Um, and so basically the definition here, just very briefly, I mean, I won't sort of bore you with it, but there's uh, there's four sort of uh, things you're looking for. So obviously one is just fever. Um, and as opposed to Kawasaki's, where we look to sort of consider five days or more, of course, now we all know about atypical cases, so it doesn't have to be five days, but the definition here is saying greater than or equal to three days with a whole slew of, of uh, potential symptoms here, uh, gastrointestinal, rash, uh, shock, myocardial dysfunction. And what's interesting is what's been reported is that these patients come in and they don't look too bad initially, but they deteriorate really, really quickly. So you got to be, again, heightened vigilance for that. They tend to have very elevated markers of inflammation. So again, looking at your ESR, C-proteins, procalcitonins uh, is helpful, elevated white blood cell counts. And as, uh, and as other, with other um, diseases, making sure that uh, there's not a mimic or there's not something else that we're missing that, uh, that, uh, that is uh, leading to this, of course, number one being, being sepsis. Um, and it's, what's interesting in the case reports that we've read is that the patients predominantly early on actually tested negative for COVID. Uh, so when you did their nasopharyngeal swabs, their oral swabs, they were actually negative. But later on, uh, about 50% of them had positivity down the line. So it's interesting. So looking at, could they have had a potential contact? Are they at risk for, for COVID? Uh, things we look at. And uh, this is a little case report uh, that came out of, uh, out of England. And um, they reported on 10 cases that uh, they saw in a 10-day um, period um, and uh, that were very Kawasaki-like, that sort of fit this multi-system inflammatory uh, syndrome. And significantly higher numbers of patients that they would see on a normal week that would present with Kawasaki-like uh, disease. And uh, again, all of these patients initially tested negative. And since they published this, uh, this report in The Lancet, they've since had 10 more cases, uh, again, with the predominance of them, all, all of them testing negative initially, and then about half of them, I think eight out of the 20, tested positive for COVID. So something to, uh, to look out for and be aware of. So hopefully that addresses the question uh, somebody asked about multi-system inflammatory syndrome uh, related to COVID. Um, we're learning more as we go. We've chatted before about a lot of the uh, children presenting with just rashes and pseudo, uh, pseudo chillblains, uh, COVID toes. Um, and, uh, and maybe, Pam, you can comment on this uh, as well, but a lot of the, uh, the pediatric population, they're, they're, they may be carriers, but not actually uh, being symptomatic, and they may be pre-symptomatic for, for a significant period of time. Pam, do you mind commenting a little bit on, uh, on, on that for us? Uh, you mean as far as detecting their virus and how successful we are? Yeah, yes, please, that'd be great. And if you know anything about, uh, just in general, the pediatric uh, presentations or lack of presentations for, for actually showing COVID. So, yeah, if we know, um, yeah, presentations and, and if we know kind of how often these uh, little uh, little monkeys are, are um, carrying coronavirus but, uh, but not showing any. So, so we think these little monkeys are, you know, we know they're virus factories for nearly everything else. And they're the source of influenza and RSV to adults all the time. Uh, and they're usually symptomatic as well. But COVID is a bit different. In fact, they aren't little virus factories. If we do find positive cases, they usually have very low viral loads. They don't have long viral shedding. They don't have high virus repeaters. They, they have very low counts. So even doing serology in looking broad-based for children is not going to be very helpful 
it's only helpful when you have you know more invasive disease. So for these children with the uh, inflammatory shock presentation, put these names in your serology bucket because we've had three or four inquiries of patients that were in our ICU in, in children under eight mostly, and all of them were, were, were uh, testing negative on multiple occasions. Worrisome, a few of them had parents who were healthcare providers were asymptomatic. Uh, but um, they were never they were never positive. So we we do want to test some of these uh, in you know when in our serology look back and and they're in our buckets. But children are very fortunate for the most part. They really aren't the um, the big reservoir that we should all worry about. They're actually getting off really easy with this virus because they aren't big shedders. They're not symptomatic. Uh, we should let them go to the playgrounds and have fun. Um, great, thanks, thanks, Pam. I appreciate, I appreciate you taking that on. That's a tough one. Um, that everyone kind of has questions about for sure. Um, there's an, another question here. I don't know, Katie. You and I can try and take this on. Uh, any role for vitamin C and vitamin D? Um, I, I mean, I can only speak to uh, not too familiar with with the use of either of those within uh, within uh, this particular disease virus. I do know that we've been using vitamin C much more um, in the ICU environment as part of the metabolic resuscitation uh, protocol, a uh, very controversial um, therapy that uh, was published probably about, I don't know, Katie, that's probably about a year and a half, two years ago now by a uh, very, very brilliant. Seems like longer. I don't know. I think it was Yeah, maybe. <laughs> And uh, using it in septic patients in high-dose vitamin C uh, in combination with thiamine uh, as well as hydrocortisone uh, with pretty dramatic improvements uh, in patients who are septic, decreasing mortality rates. Um, but it was sort of a, just a case series that he did, not randomized. There's been some studies looking into it in quite detail that will give us more answers. The first study that came out was not uh, did not show the same robust results. It was a small study. So... I'm not sure if that's what the question is getting at, but uh, I'm in the ICU this week, and I've, I did use it uh, just today in a very, very sick patient with uh, necrotizing fasciitis, but I don't think there's much harm in it. I will add the only harm we've seen with vitamin C, high-dose vitamin C, is it um, interferes with the, uh, the glucometers. And so there have been cases, thankfully not in Island Health or in BC that I know of, but there have been cases of people being significantly hypoglycemic but the glucometer is reading normal. And so people have had bad outcomes from severe neuroglycopenia. Um, but other than that, I'm, I'm not, other than that, it's fairly benign. Again, I talked about, I do believe in steroids. I'm not necessarily uh, suggesting I'm going to give everyone dexamethasone, but I, I do use steroids quite a bit in my, and I have in my career and have used them increasingly so because I just haven't seen a lot of side effects and, and definitely potential benefits. Um, Katie, what, what, what are your thoughts? I, so I have not seen either of these therapies used for COVID specifically and in terms of the evidence that, that I'm aware of, and I'm very happy to be correct, corrected by others. I think there's some data that's very observational linking vitamin D deficiency to worse outcomes, but again, really hard to know what to make of that. And certainly, I, I'm not aware of any trials actually looking at vitamin D supplementation um, as a treatment for COVID. With vitamin C, I believe that there's a tr at least one trial ongoing now looking at it for treatment of COVID, uh, but no results yet. That I know of. So, I mean, I, I mean, I think I'm in the same camp as you in general. I, I think that 
both of those therapies are unlikely to be harmful. Vitamin D in particular, we give to a lot of our patients on the ward, especially in Canada in the winter months. So at those kind of doses, I think it's very likely to do any harm, but uh, there's no evidence that I know of to date. Uh, thanks, Katie. Yeah, there's, uh, I don't know why, but I just thought of this, uh, this patient that came in, his dad brought this, uh, this kid in and he was really worried because the kid had taken like a whole bottle of uh, um, these, uh, these vitamins that look like uh, gummy bears or something. And so I sort of, you know, looked in, there was no iron, there's nothing there that looked like it was toxic. And uh, so I was like, yeah, you're fine. And, and the dad felt really, really bad and, and he felt horrible. And he was sort of taking care of the kid for the first time mom was back to work or something like that. And and uh, so I was like, great. And there was an awkward silence at the end where I said, you're fine to go. And, he, and then he sort of took me aside. He said, doctor, I took them too. Am I going to be okay? And he was trying to remind me. So um, anyway, sorry. Um, but that being said, we're going to wrap it up at this point. Um, I think uh, Bob had asked us um, at the beginning of this uh, to just give a little single pearl or, um, or sort of uh, summary of our thoughts on COVID, maybe just a roundtable sort of discussion if everyone sort of has a, a little a little pearl to take home, and then I think we're going to end it uh, at that. I think that's what we're thinking um, uh, from instructions from uh, from our leader, Bob, here. So I'm just going to go with uh, with who I see first here, and unfortunately, that's you, Jeanette, so I don't know if you are able to uh, give us a quick little quick little tidbit or pearl or something along those lines to end. Um, so, so three quick things. Don't go back. Embrace the silver linings of the pandemic response in terms of how we're practicing medicine and meeting patients where they're at uh, around virtual care. Uh, vigilance around the upcoming sort of secondary waves around stress-related illnesses and, and overlooked um, chronic disease management, in particular mental health, substance abuse, inter interpersonal violence, and just that generalized chronic stress that people are experiencing and being vigilant and, and screening for that. And then the third is uh, self-compassion and take vacation this summer. Um, and so you can be adequately prepared and everybody's doing amazing and great and take care of yourself. Great. Well, well said, Jeanette. Thank you so much. Uh, next on my screen is uh, Raquel. I don't have anything clinical to add, but just with my public health hat, I just think we need to just uh, continue to be vigilant about COVID. We know that case counts are really low right now. Uh, but we all just need to continue to do our part and follow direction from Dr. Henry, continue to do our best to physical distance, hand hygiene, and absolutely stay at home when you're sick. Great. Thank you, Raquel. Um, Katie, you're up next. I think that, as you said at the beginning, it's been very humbling to see over the course of this pandemic how often we have been wrong about things and how often something that we believe one week turns out to be wrong. So I think that you know, we're going to go into the next few months with that same um, knowledge that, that we really don't know anything and that what we think could change very quickly. However, as you've again alluded to, I think that a lot of the basic tenets of good, good public health, good medical care, good critical care, I think those are all really important not to forget. We know how to take care of sick patients. We may see some more things come out in terms of details, but, but I think the basics uh, really should, should stay the same. Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. I'm going to now uh, have Donovan, who's uh, always in the background, but just really making this successful. So I'm going to turn him over to him to have a, a word here. Omar said I have to speak. Um, my pearl would just be to uh, communicate with those loved ones that are away from you and, uh, and potentially live alone. 
I know myself in, in British Columbia, I've got two grandmothers in Saskatchewan who both live alone, and the isolation has certainly taken a toll on them, and so I've made an effort to kind of call each of them uh, every Sunday. And so I've heard kind of back back through my parents how much they appreciate that and something that I'm going to continue to do, just getting that feedback that they look forward to those phone calls and it's an easy thing for me to do and it makes a big difference for them. Thank you, Donovan. And uh, just for people that are watching, this distance looks like less than uh, six feet, but I can assure you it's two meters or more between Donovan and I. Um, Pam, if you uh, don't mind. Uh, my, yeah, my messaging would be... Uh, not to be macho and go anywhere when you're sick. So that applies to the grocery store, the bank machine, uh, the hospital. And if you do develop symptoms, don't hesitate to go and get a test because the earlier you get diagnosed, the faster the contact tracing starts. I, I might recall when I was a resident in Toronto at, uh, at Sick Kids, we had 365 people who got norovirus from using the bank machine in the hospital. So just to remember, you know, the, the R0 of COVID is not 365, but it's not one either. So you can magnify the disease hugely if you come to work and those people subsequently infect others. So be respectful, be kind, and be safe. Maybe, Pam, you and I should do a study on the uh, correlation between the increased use of TAP and the uh, decreasing uh, rates of norovirus. Mm -hmm. um, all right, and then uh, Donish, if you can uh, go next. Um, I don't think I have much to add. It sounds like you guys have learned all the lessons that we uh, failed to implement in New York City, and it sounds like you guys are doing an amazing and wonderful job. I hope that you keep up and you uh, don't have to deal with the horrors that we dealt with during the uh, peak of the COVID season. Um, and, and Donish, I, you know, I've, I've heard time and time again uh, from people that I know uh, and people that have watched the webinars about how much they have learned from you. So thank you so much from all we've learned, and it really helped us uh, helped us prepare. Um, and I was talking to one of the uh, executive directors for long-term care, and he had said that. I was talking to him just two days ago. He said, Omar, you know, I was talking to you and talking, you were telling me about your experience with your brother, that we really ramped up what we were doing with long-term care in Island Health. We came up with a plan immediately uh, to sort of deal with it. He said that all came back from me telling him about your experience. So thank you. Uh, my closing comments are, you know, it's kind of a dark world we live in, but, uh, you know, with coronavirus, a lot of bad things happened, of course, but I'm just so blown away with how there's so much humanity that has been shown through coronavirus, locally, provincially, nationally, internationally, it's amazing. And everyone coming together and working so hard and showing that we are all vulnerable and we're in this together. And with this Black Lives Matters movement, again, seeing the, the love, the, the support, the, you know, going back to, uh, you know, just treating each other as humans. It's just really sad things have happened, but at the same time, it's just given you know, I think a lot of us hope that things are things are turning uh, for for the better. Hopefully, as we move forward, and as Jeanette said, the collaboration that we've seen for our rural providers and, and not letting people sort of be alone and, and afraid. I think I think that's huge. Um, and in terms of welcoming new uh, beginnings, uh, Adam had to leave because his wife went into active labor. Um, so thank you uh, to the panelists who come. 
uh, despite their shifts, despite it being late at night, despite the time changes, to come and join us time and time again. And I want to thank our listeners to uh, listening to us uh, drone on, and especially having to hear my voice way too much. We thank you so much for, for joining our webinars. Uh, thank you. Bob, over to you. Wow, uh, that was an incredible webinar. Thank, thank you to all of you. Uh, you covered such a breadth and with such you know, knowledge and passion. Um, and um, so I'm, I'm sure those would, on the, uh, in the audience would love to keep hearing more of you, but we have reached the two hours and have to stop. And again, I, I do want to express my sincere gratitude to the panel, Drs. Omar Ahmed, uh, Adam Thomas, who's hopefully going to be a father again soon, uh, Danish Ahmed, uh, Jeanette Boyd, uh, Katie Whisker, Raquel Kling, Pam Kinsey, and Donovan McDonald. Um, you're all very dedicated healthcare professionals and excellent educators. Um, a huge thank you for taking time from your very busy lives and heavy responsibilities to present and answer the audience's questions tonight. I'm, I'm sure everyone has really appreciated it. And the, the top trending uh, you know, question on, on, on Slido was uh, just say thanks for all your information and teaching that, that was repeated there. So thank you on behalf of the audience. I also want to acknowledge our hardworking UBC CPD staff, uh, Stephanie Amiel, Judy Chen, Desiree Torrios, uh, Kathy Gell, Jeff Din, Kate Miffin, Yan Chow, Vivian Lam, Nina Zorick, Lindsay Callan, Michelle Basin, um, Sandy McNeil, Jenny Barrows, and others, without whom I can guarantee you that the delivery of these webinars would not be possible. I also want to thank you all for attending and hope the session was of value. Uh, please take a few moments right now to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that were emailed to you in order to obtain study credits and to also provide feedback to us on tonight's webinar. If you're interested in more COVID-19 related content, another great show you might enjoy is hosted by Drs. Sarah Fletcher and Morgan Price. Their podcast is Primary Care in a Pandemic, and it looks at changes to primary care in BC and how healthcare providers are adapting to the crisis. Metamorphosis is a podcast by medical students for medical students to help navigate their professional careers. The first few episodes of the season are part of their COVID-19 series, with an added focus on healthcare workers and how they've been involved with and affected by the global pandemic. On behalf of the UBC Medicine team, I hope you are staying healthy, happy, and safe in this crisis, and we want to extend our sincerest thanks to those who are working tirelessly to keep everyone safe. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 